My first life. I was born in Lodz, Poland, into a loving middle-class family. We were a religious Hasidic family who were not only followers of the Gero Rebbe, but also very close to him. He was magnificent-looking, with long white beard and clear eyes. His followers looked upon him as a sort of holy prince. And as he sat on a throne like a chair against the wall of his study, people would come to him with supplications and requests, hoping that he would intercede with God on their behalf. My father's family were winemakers, going back generations, and we were for the 1930s Europe considered quite well off. Each of my parents had a large extended family two sets of grandparents and lots of uncles and aunts and cousins. But my immediate family was small, as my parents had only two children, my twin sister, Sabina, and me. We were born on July 21, 1932, and regrettably, or maybe luckily, given what happened later, My mother had a very difficult childbirth and couldn't have any more children after we were born. So we were just the four of us, even though I was only 11 years old when I lost almost my entire family, I remembered them and the life we lived before the war extremely well. It is both fortunate and unfortunate to have such a vivid memory. My family lived at Ulica Street, Zachodnia 54, a four- or five-story building right in the center of town, in a predominantly Jewish area. I know for sure that my family owned the building we lived in because I've got documents from the deeds office in Lodge that prove it. Zachodnia 54 was a typical Polish apartment block, a complex of four buildings surrounding a square in a courtyard. My paternal grandfather Yitzchak, or as he was called Ichimea Gutter, and his second wife lived in a small apartment next to ours, and there was an adjoining door between the two apartments. My grandfather was a learned man, and as a philanthropist, he was a voluntary head of a charitable yeshiva or seminary where people were taught to be rabbis in Poland. As in all Eastern Europe at the time, it was common for Hasidim to create schools. My grandfather was quite well known in Łódź. I have been told that if you get off the train at the station in Łódź, and asked where Ichimaya Gutta lived, any Jew on the street could tell you exactly that. He was that renowned. My paternal grandparents had 13 children, but only five of them, three daughters and two sons, survived the influenza epidemic of 1918-1919. My paternal grandmother, Tobetsiru Gutta, died in 1933, about a year after I was born, so I don't remember her, and my grandfather, in keeping with the tradition, remarried after her death. We called his second wife Chocha Babcha, which means Auntie Granny, and she was a very nice woman. My sister Sabina and I 
would often go over to visit my grandfather when we were small, and I clearly remember that in his bedroom, on a stand opposite his bed, he had a metal chest, a kind of huge strong box, which was gilded and fashioned in the Baroque style. My grandfather had the only key to that chest, and sometimes he would open it up and take out the only thing in it to show us children. It was a parchment scroll that detailed the genealogy of our family going back 400 years in Poland. That disappeared in the war. Along with my family and my grandfather, two of my father's siblings and their families who lived in the same building, my father's elder brother Zalman, and my father's middle sister, Hanna Lipska. Salman was regarded as a bit of a black sheep. It was a complicated story as to why. Being a child, I didn't really know exactly what the details were. I think it had something to do with the fact that after his wife died, Salman remarried and didn't look after his first wife's children, Noah and Shifra, very well. My father became like a guardian to them, and Shifra even got married in our house instead of her father's. I remember the wedding because of one awful incident. Women were hired to prepare the food for the wedding party in our apartment, and one of the dishes that they were preparing was called in Polish galareta, and in Yiddish pecha. This was an espic usually made from calf's feet, but ours was made from ox feet. It seems that instead of using salt to clean the feet, they used by mistake way too much saltpeter, a chemical blend that often used to preserve food. All the many people at the party ate this galaretta, of course not knowing what this woman had done, and suddenly people started vomiting. A lot of people got sick. But thankfully, nobody died. My aunt Hannah's husband was also a Hasid, and he used to study a lot, but I don't think he did much otherwise in terms of work. He was a kind man, but he always had money problems. Whenever they were badly off or had problems, Chocha Hannah would come to our house, lie on the sofa, and say she had problems with her liver she would mourn in Yiddish. I am passing out. And she would ask for cocoa. When she did that, everybody knew that what was really needed was money. My father was always generous to her, so I don't think they were ever completely destitute. My father's elder sister, Esther, and her husband, Moshe Shloime Levinson, didn't live too far away. Moshe Schleumer also came from a long line of Hasidim. He was originally from Warsaw, but moved to Luj, where he married my aunt, and he then worked with my father and grandfather in the winemaking business. I don't recall what his actual role was, but he was the only one in the family, other than my father and grandfather, who was involved in the business itself. My youngest aunt, Sabina, was married to a man named Vovo Spiegelglas, and they lived in Warsaw. I don't know what he did for a living, 
but they were wealthy, and he used to come to visit us in Wuge, driving his own little Fiat motor car, which had only two doors and red upholstery. My grandfather didn't like it when he came in his own car, because at the time, most people only had horses and droshka, a wagon, and my grandfather felt it was too showy for him to arrive in an automobile that he owned. start to stecken in the Eugen, my grandfather would say in Yiddish. Why do you have to rub it in? Why incur jealously by sticking your wells in their eyes? My mother's family came from a near small town called Vielun. Hers was also a Hasidic family, and my maternal grandfather was a Kohen, meaning that he was from a priestly tribe, and he was a very learned man. They too followed the Gera Rebbe, and that's how my parents ended up together. My father did not know my mother before they got married. It was a Shidduch an arranged marriage, which had to be sanctioned by the Gera Rebbe. When they both went to meet with him, the Gera Rebbe approved their marriage because both had yichas, good ancestry, and so it was considered a proper match. That's the way it was in those days. If you were a Hasid and close to the Rebbe, he had to look at the yichas, the pedigree of the prospective bride or groom, to determine if it was a suitable match. The important aspect of one's ancestry wasn't money, though it was learning. The more sages you had in your ancestry, the more yichas you had, and the more desirable you were for a marriage. My maternal grandparents were both much younger than my paternal grandparents and lived outside Vierum, where they had a farm. I recall my grandmother, Miro, putting fruit in jars, making jam, and rendering fat for cooking. My grandfather, Shimshon Zilberstein, was tall and strong. The whole family was tall, with blonde hair and blue eyes. In addition to the farm, my grandfather also had a tobacco shop in Wielun. I only learned that fact when I went back to Poland many years after the war. The director of the archives in Vielun informed me that it was impossible for my grandfather to have had a farm, because Jews weren't allowed to have farms, but that he did have a tobacco shop in town. But that director was wrong. I had been to my grandparents' farm many times as a child, and my sister and I used to play with the chickens, geese, ducks, and horses, my grandfather even exported eggs to England, and I saw how they were packed in preservatives to keep them fresh for transport. My mother, Chaya Yenta, Zilberstein Guter, was born in 1908 and was the eldest of her siblings. She was beautiful with her blonde hair and blue eyes, which were passed down to both my sister and me and was always extremely well-groomed. She would have been considered quite a modern woman for her time because she didn't cut her hair, as most religious women did, and wore her shaitel, her wig, only in public, never at home. When she went out, she tucked her own hair under it. My mother was highly intelligent, 
She had a secular education and finished gymnasium, the equivalent of high school, before the war. In fact, the Gere Rebbe encouraged secular education for women, which was rare at the time, and a lot of Hasidic women went to gymnasium. In our Hasidic world, a lot of women were secularly oriented, while the men were religious and sheltered from worldly things mainly devoted to work and study. My mother spoke Polish fluently, and although we spoke Yiddish at home with my father, she spoke to my sister and I in Polish, so we were bilingual from birth. She was a voracious reader and often read books in Polish. I suppose I inherited my love of books from her. She encouraged me to read and bought me comics in Yiddish. She also bought me the comic book Zorro in Polish and others as well. My mother took me to the cinema sometimes, a place where if my father had known, I wouldn't have been allowed to go. Even my reading of comic books was without my father's knowledge, since he wouldn't have approved of me reading those books. All he wanted was for me to study the Talmud and the Torah, the Bible and the commentaries of Rashi. My father, Menachem Mendel Jonathan Gutter, was the second youngest in his family and was born in 1904 or 1905. He was a kind, charitable man. My grandfather would always say to him, one day someone will take the shirt off your back. Every day, people would come and ask him for money, and he would give his money away. But I think he was also a reticent, shy person. He was quiet and did not get involved in arguments. He was devoutly religious, and I was remember him with his head in a book. He hardly spoke Polish, mainly Yiddish and Hebrew, and was strict with me as far as study was concerned. The only time we really interacted was on Shabbos, the Sabbath, when I used to go with him down to the Shtibel, the house of prayer that was downstairs in our building. Most buildings had a Shtibel. People didn't go regularly to a shul, a synagogue. On the Sabbath, our neighborhood looked like Jerusalem, with everybody walking with their talisim, their prayer shawls, there were 250,000 Jews living in Wuj before the war, and our presence was felt. Even though my father worked every day of the week and I saw little of him, his routine is strongly engraved in my brain. He would get up as early in the morning and do his ablutions, his ritual wash, and then sit down and study the Talmud. After that, he would put on his talis, his prayer shawl, and daven, pray. Only when he was done would he sit down and have his breakfast. As a small child, I would get up early too, and I would crawl underneath the table where he was sitting. He liked cigars, and as I sat there, I would inhale the pungent aroma of his cigars. Every cigar had a ring on it, and he would give me the ring to play with. When he finished a box of cigars, 
I would get the boxes too. After his breakfast, my father went to the winery and was there all day. In the evening, he came back, studied more, and went to the Stiebel. Our family wine business was called Zwote Grono, the golden grape, and on the logo was two people carrying a vine of grapes. We were the only Jewish winemakers in Wuj and one of the largest suppliers of spirits and wine in the country, as well as concessionaires of stock brandies and liqueurs. Mainly, we made kosher wine, but also produced lots of wine from berries and other fruits, peach brandy and wine from honey. Our wine cellar was located at Tuluza Novomieska 19, about a 10-minute walk from our home. My grandfather and father imported the must, the freshly pressed grape juice, from vineyards in Hungary and brought it to the cellar in Wuj to make wine. I know that at one time my grandfather also owned vineyards in British Mandate Palestine. He used to go there once a year, apparently. The last time he went to Palestine, which was in 1938, he saw young Jewish women wearing short pants, working in vineyards. To my grandfather, as a Hasidic Jew, they didn't look modest, and he decided that it wasn't the right time for Jews to be in Palestine. We had to wait for the Messiah to come first. So he sold the vineyards and bought some other properties, but I don't know what type of properties or where they were. We had a comfortable life when I was a small child. We had a large apartment on the first level above the ground floor that had a view of the street and of the garden in the central courtyard. When I looked out of my parents' bedroom window, I could see a textile factory across the road. We had five rooms, one of which was a large dining room with an enormous table that could comfortably seat between 12 and 15 but could also accommodate up to 24 people. Our parents' bedroom, a shared bedroom for Sabina and me, a kitchen and a toilet, and we also had a large balcony where we built the sukkah every year. My mother had a cook and servants to look after us children, and we even had a telephone at home, which was unusual. It was a wonderful life. Every Shabbos was like a special holiday and my mother would always make fish, soup, meat, and compote. My father was a charitable person and would bring people to our house every Friday night for Shabbos dinner. On Saturday, there was always choland for the midday meal. My mother would prepare this bean and meat casserole on Fridays and take it to the bakery where it would cook overnight in the oven. Then after prayers the next day, my sister and I would run to the bakery to collect it. We had a little piece of paper with a number written on it that we would give to the baker, and in return, he would give us my mother's big pot of choland. My sister would take one side, and I would take the other, and we would run home quickly because lunch needed to be served. As we ran, we anticipated the aroma and the delicious meat and barley, beans and potatoes. We also knew that nestled inside the choland, there was a little sealed ceramic pot with a sweet kugel for dessert. To prepare for the beautiful Jewish holidays, the Yamim Toivim, 
My mother would be in the kitchen for weeks, and we children were giddy with excitement, knowing all the family would be coming together to celebrate. In the summers we went to our dasha, our summer house, which was in the forest at a place called Vishnova Gura, Cherry Mountain, about 14 kilometers southeast of Wuj. My mother, my sister and I would stay there during the week, and then my father would come out on Friday's afternoons for the weekend. It was a place where a lot of other Hasidim went, and I have memories of us all praying in the forest. Because, as I mentioned, we were well off, Sabina and I had nannies. When we were young, my sister and I slept in the same room and had one nanny who was Jewish. Sabina's cot was at one end of the room and mine was at the other, by the other door, and in the mornings the nanny would come and bring little potties for us to use. As twins, we were like one person and always together. My sister had beautiful long blonde hair to her waist and she was very proud of and wore in braids. My earliest memories are of us playing together. I was a naughty little boy and I would pull her braids to tease her. I also remember that when she was ill, she didn't like to take medicine. I was better at it, but she had to be coaxed to take it. When I was three and a half years old, my grandfather took me to Cheder, religious school, for the first time. The first day at Cheder, he took with him a bag of sweets. All the boys were sitting on low benches against a wall, and I took the bag of sweets and gave each of the children a candy. Then my grandfather introduced me to the teacher. Being in a religious community, girls and boys were separated at an early age. And at the moment I started going to Cheder, I became one of the men, and my sister and I were separated. It became difficult for us to stay close. We were each had our own room and our own nanny. Sometimes my mother would take both of us to the park together, which was about a 10-minute walk from our house. But I rarely remember Sabina and I being taken out together by our nannies. The reason I specifically recall going to the park alone with my nanny is that, that she had a soldier boyfriend whom she would meet in the park when she took me out. In Poland, before the war, Jews had to do military service like everyone else, and her soldier boyfriend was always wearing his uniform. I recall playing with his tiny metal bowl that hung from the bottom of the bayonet attached to the back of his belt. While he was talking to my nanny, I would fiddle with this metal bowl, intrigued by it. At Cheder, I began to learn Alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet, as well as the Old Testament. There was a government regulation that we also had to learn secular subjects. So we learned Jewish subjects in the morning, and secular subjects like reading Polish and simple arithmetic in the afternoon. My mother, as I mentioned, supplied me with comics in Polish to read at home, so I learned Polish quickly, and by the age of five I was quite fluent in both Yiddish and Polish and understood a lot of Hebrew from my Chede studies. I went to school for only four years before the war started. 
And that is all the formal education I had until decades later, after I got married. Everything else I know is self-taught and mostly learned from reading. Once I started learning the Old Testament, and later on, when I began studying the Talmud, I was preoccupied with study. It was a big part of my life. Most important for me was to accurately learn the Parsha, the weekly portion of the Bible. Every week, as well as Rashi commentaries about it, because when my father came home from work, he would often ask me what I had studied that day. He was so studious, he practically knew the whole Old Testament and Talmud by heart and would test me on what I had learned at school. I didn't enjoy that because it felt like homework. If that wasn't bad enough, my grandfather sometimes asked me too, and if I didn't know, the experience would be very unpleasant. I didn't like studying much, and I especially didn't like being interrogated by my father and grandfather. As a matter of fact, I didn't like to follow rules. I didn't even like to say my prayers, either in the morning or in the evening. I knew I had to say my prayers, just like my father did, before I could have breakfast, but I was stubborn and I didn't want to. Eventually, I even developed a system to avoid saying them. I would hide in the washroom, and my mother would come and knock on the door and say, you must cut out and say your prayers, and if you don't, you'll have to go to school without breakfast. But I was so obstinate that sometimes I wouldn't come out until it was time to go to school, and then, true to her word, I had to go to school hungry. At about the same time, I began going to Cheder, my father took me down to the wine cellar and started to teach me how to become a winemaker. The first time, he took out ten bottles of wine, each with a number painted on it from one to ten, and ten little cups the size of shot glasses. Then he poured a little wine into each of the cups and put it next to the bottle and said, Go and inhale the aromas. Take your time and smell each one. I inhaled the aromas, but as a little boy without patience, it didn't take long before I said I was done. Then he asked me to turn around so I couldn't see what he was doing. He took all the bottles away and mixed up the cups. Then he told me to turn back around, gave me one of the cups and told me to inhale the aroma. Which bottle did the cup of wine come from? he asked. Of course, I didn't know. But as time went by, I began to recognize what grape the wine was made from, which country it came from, what kind of mixture, and it was so forth. That is the mark of a winemaker. The aroma is far more important than the taste. You have to really inhale the aroma of the wine to know what it is. I am not a winemaker, but even to this day, I can still tell more or less what grape a wine is from and also if it is good or bad, just from the scent of the wine. My father taught me how to do that. By swirling the wine and inhaling it, whether the wine is red or white, I can tell if it's a fine wine, a young wine, or raw and not particularly great. In my early years... The persons I was close to was my mother. 
I was a curious child, interested in seeing everything that was going on. And I was always around my mother, particularly when she was in the kitchen. I learned how to cook from her, and I was actually in the kitchen with her more than my sister was. I can still visualize the kitchen and the window where we used to cool geese that she roasted. I can even recall how she used to control the heat on the wood-fired oven by putting rings on the burners depending on how hot she needed it to be. When she put all the rings on, there was low heat. If she wanted it hotter, she would take off first ring and so on. I loved to watch her cook. Even though she had a cook, she did a lot of the cooking herself and supervised what the cook did. Her mother used to send her goose skins by train from the farm, which my mother would render into fat. Gribbeners! All our food was made at home, and my mother always prepared the food for Shabbos and the Jewish holidays herself. I still make some dishes that I learned from watching my mother when I was five, six, and seven years old. I make her Cholent exactly the way she made it for my family. At Passover, we couldn't eat anything made of matzo meal if it touched any liquid. That meant we couldn't have regular noodles with our soup. So my mother would take eggs, beat them, and fry them thinly like an omelet and cut them into long strips like noodles. Then she would throw these strips of fried egg into the chicken soup when she spooned it out. We also used to have something in the soup called chremslach, a mixture of potato and egg fried in goose fat. She used to make cakes too, from almond flour or potato flour, and bubas, fried egg and potato, flour bowls when we put puger on, and had as dessert. On the eighth day of the holiday, we were finally allowed knedlach, matzo bowls, with our soup. Although matzo meal or flour couldn't touch liquid on the first seven days of Passover, when the holiday was practically over, it was allowed. So on the eighth day, my mother would go sugar, crazy, with the matzo meal because she was allowed to use it to bake and make bubas, knedlach and matzo bray, matzo soaked in boiling water, drained and fried with egg, We children always looked forward to the last day of Passover. Food made with matzo meal was so much tastier than made with potato flour. Every year, when my father observed his mother's yardside, the anniversary of her death, my mother would make a huge meal for all my father's Hasidic friends. Having such a large meal in retrospect was a funny tradition and may perhaps have been taken from Christianity, wherein ceremonies like wakes have such large gatherings. For that particular meal, she used to make what we called an Indic mitten crop, a turkey with its crop, which is the swelling on the throat. I can envision both its appearance and taste. She used to carefully skin a turkey to keep it intact, take out all the meat, mince it, and stuff it back into the skin. It still looked like a turkey, but it had no bones. My mother then baked it and cut it into slices like you would sausage. Preparing for Shabbos started every Thursday. I would go with my mother to the market 
to buy fish. Always live carp, which he would put in our bathtub so it would swim around for the night. Carp are bottom feeders and kind of muddy, so this gave the carp time to filter out all the impurities before she cooked it. On Friday mornings, she would prepare the fish, chicken soup and noodles, which she would make herself and either roast goose, chicken or veal. Then she would prepare the cholent for Saturday. Whenever my mother got a goose from her mother for Shabbos, she roasted it and then put it beside the window to cool off before she put it in the ice chest, which contained a block of ice. We didn't have refrigerators in those days. I had a healthy appetite when I was a child, and one day there was this magnificent goose lying by the window, and the smell was intoxicating. I couldn't resist it, and so when nobody was looking, I tore a leg off and helped myself. After a while, my mother went to have a look at the goose. She glanced from the goose to me and said, What happened to the leg? I remember as clearly as anything answering. The goose only had one leg. Of course, she knew exactly what had happened to that leg. I loved goose. But there were certain things that I didn't like to eat, one of which was noodles. My mother, as she did for Passover, made her own, rolling the dough and cutting the noodles. When I refused to eat them, she would run after me with a spoonful of these noodles, and when she caught up with me, she would force the noodles into my mouth. But I would keep them stuffed in my cheeks. In Polish, the word for swallow is polkni, and when I was a child, everyone used to call me Pinek. My mother was always running after me with these noodles saying, Pinek Polkni, and after a while, people started calling me Polkne Pinek. So my nickname came from not swallowing noodles. When I was six years old, I got quite ill with double pneumonia. In those days, pneumonia meant almost certain death, and my parents must have been panic-stricken. I was put into my mother's bed right away. My mother constantly paced the bedroom reciting psalms. Polish Jews were very superstitious, as were many Catholics, and my parents tried all kinds of superstitious remedies. They brought a white dove into the bedroom that flew around the room, did its business on the bed, and made a nest on top of the wardrobe. I don't know exactly what the dove was supposed to be doing. As far as medicine was concerned, Dr. Hirschfinkel, our family doctor, tried various remedies in the beginning, but they didn't work. He applied gehackte bankers, cupping glasses. After making small cuts on my back, my back bled a bit, and these heated cups were placed on top of the cuts to draw out the blood. They didn't help. The only result was that my back was terribly sore. The doctor also tried taking blood from my father and injecting it into my buttocks, which also had no effect. Then Dr. Hirschfinkel gave me some tablets. I had heard my parents talking about Dr. Hirschfinkel going to Vienna to get special pills for me. Once I began taking them, I coughed up buckets of phlegm and slowly began to recover. The tablets had MMB imprinted on them. 
and after the war I was told that they had been made by the May and Baker Company and that they were the first sulfur, sulfonamidate drug. Those drugs saved my life. Even after I was more or less recovered, my lungs remained pretty weak. I was sent to a place called Shavnitsa, a spa resort town in Novitark County in southern Poland, famous for its clean air and waters rich in mineral salts. It is on the border between Czechoslovakia and Poland, located on the Dunajec River and near the Tatra Mountains. Shavnitsa specialized in treatments of respiratory tract illnesses, and people went there, as they do today, to be cured. Many Hasidim went there, too, even the Geru Rebbe and his entourage. The people living in the mountain above the village were Polish Christian mountain people called Gurale. They wore black hats with feather and seashells sewn on the brims. They also had colorful clothes they wore only on Sundays. The Gurale lived in primitive huts alongside their animals. My mother bought me there, and I think she stayed with me for a day or so, but then I was left alone with a family. My mother visited me, and I think that my sister Sabina also came once. My father would come too from time to time, but for the most part I was free to run around, left alone to be by myself, surrounded by the mountains and the deep cold river. That environment allowed me to do things on my own that I've never done before, being free, wandering, and exploring. And I was very happy there. It felt as though time stood still, but I must have stayed there for about six months because I remember the changing of seasons. Being so ill and having a chance to recover must have been important to my psyche. Being alone, not in the bosom of my family, and separated from my sister, left a great impression on me and shaped me in some way. I think this kind of self-reliance helped me to survive later on. There was one incident, though, that occurred during my time in Shavnitsa that has stayed clear in my memory. There was a big park in the village, down the mountain from where I was staying, and in the park there was a bandstand where every Sunday the bands of the local military or fire brigade used to come and play music. The music ranged from waltzes to opera, and because I loved to listen to music, I would go there, sit on a bench and listen. Before each song, the band leader would announce the name of the piece they were about to play. I have an especially poignant memory of a piece called Schmierz Niewolnicy, Death of the Slaves. By the time the concerts were over and I walked back up to the mountain to the hut, it would be late in the day. Halfway between the park in the village and the mountains was a beautiful church. And as I walked back, I would stop to listen to the music and the choir singing at the Mass. I would stand outside and listen, captivated by the wonderful sounds. I knew I wouldn't be welcome inside with my blonde pears, side locks, 
And besides, as a Jewish boy, I wouldn't go inside the church anyway, so I stood at a bit of a distance and listened to the magnificent melodies. On one particular Sunday, I was standing near the church, and I was so immersed in the music that I found myself walking closer to the church than I normally did to hear the music better. There were three or four steps leading up to the church door. And as I came to the first step, I must have been caught in a kind of rapture because I knelt on the first step to listen. Suddenly, I felt someone smack me hard on the back of my head. A middle-aged man had come up behind me and hit me. How dare you contaminate the soil of our Holy Mother Church, he said. The words he used were Paskudni Jid, leprous or filthy Jew. Poland is a deeply religious Catholic country, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, is very important to there. So to him, I suppose I was defiling the Holy Mother's Church. I was so young that at the time I didn't think this incident really made much of an impression on me. I simply ran back up the mountain to the family and their hut. Yet, I'm now sure the incident had some kind of an effect on me because it has stayed with me my entire life. I must have been frightened when the men hit me, as immersed in the music as I was. Yet, I don't think it made me permanently afraid of everyone. I wanted to make sure that I remembered this incident correctly, especially since I have recounted this story to people many times. The first time I went back to Poland, I did not go back to my hometown of Lodz right away. I wanted to go back to Szawnica to make sure that my memory of that time was precise. Was there really a church? Did it have steps? Was there a bandstand in the park? And when I went back, I saw that there was. It was just as I remembered. The bandstand was bricked up, but it was there, and so was the church. I was there in that village. I knelt on the church steps. I received a blow to the head, and I was chased away, and I was called a dirty Jew. It was my imagination. People talk a lot about antisemitism in Poland before the war, but I didn't really see that much of it myself. I was a child, and fortunately for me, I was growing up in a family that does reasonably well to do, so I was protected from lots of issues. Besides, I was busy with school and playing and making mischief, and I didn't pay attention to much else. Still, even though I was preoccupied with my own thoughts and protected by my family, occasionally I was confronted by the difference between us and them. Sometimes on my way home from Cheder, young Gentile boys would pull my payers or they would shout, Jid, Ije do Palestini, Jew, go to Palestine. Nonetheless, I always walked to Cheder by myself. I never got the impression that my parents felt I was being threatened. There was certainly antisemitism between the two world wars and persecution of minorities, even though Jews counted between 10 and 12% of the populations, we were still considered a minority. 
but at the same time, we lived a decent life. In Poland, Jews worked in a myriad of occupations, as members of parliament and of the Senate, doctors, lawyers, on the police force, as shop owners, and for the radio station as well. Yet, that said, life was not without its difficulties if you were a Jew. The concession for winemakers was awarded yearly, and the input of ministers and others was needed to get the award. My father would phone the few Jewish members of parliament and rabbis with influence for weeks before the deadline every year. There was plenty of tension at home until he got all the people on board to intercede for him with the ministry and award him the concession for the coming year. There was a certain amount of bribery involved too, for those who didn't like Jews and others who could be influenced with a little help. Imagine people needing to do this every single year, knowing that their livelihoods could be cut off at the whim of ministers and officials, knowing that they were at the mercy of the caprice of those individuals. There was one anti-Semitic incident that occurred to me and my mother but I think it may have had a greater effect on her than on me. One autumn day, we were out walking on our street. As always, she was beautifully dressed and was wearing her blonde scheitel with her own beautiful blonde hair tucked under it, so you couldn't tell whether it was a wig or her own hair. I was walking next to her and holding her hand, wearing a little jacket and hat, my blonde pear sticking out of it. A man was coming towards us on the street, and I still know exactly what he looked like. He was wearing a coat with brown fur collar, and he had a brown felt hat. He wore a cravat at his neck, he had glasses on, and he walked with a cane that had a silver knob. As he approached, he stopped. My mother thought he wanted to ask her something, but he just stared from her to me and said to her in Polish, how could a young, beautiful woman like you work for these dirty Jews as a maid? He had assumed that since my mother had blonde hair and blue eyes, she couldn't possibly be Jewish. My mother didn't say a word, and we simply crossed the road. From that time on, if she saw anyone who seemed suspicious, we would cross the road to avoid them. We would even cross the road occasionally when we didn't need to and zigzag our way down the street. Certainly, life got worse as the war came closer. I had Aryan looks aside from my payers and my mother's tying them up and putting them under my head to hide them, because when we walked on the street, young gentle boys would come up and pull them. It reached the point that by 1938, my parents wanted to immigrate to Palestine. I remember talk in the house about it, but my grandfather objected to the idea, and my parents wouldn't have disobeyed his wishes. Their patriarchal deference was much too strong. All these occurrences brought home to me the true relationship between Jews and Gentiles in Poland. And although this stayed with me, I don't remember having emotions around it, in the same way that being chased from the church didn't disturb me to the extent that I thought that I had to be afraid in the world. It wasn't that I never felt anything 
I do remember having lots of other emotions, how happy I was when my sister and I ran to get the cholent on Shabbos, the comforting smells of my mother's cooking. Antisemitic incidents affected me only momentarily. I knew the Jews were not thought of highly by Catholics and that Gentiles didn't like us. I knew we were separate, but that was fine by me. My attitude was, so what? It didn't really bother me in my world until the war broke out. I had an idyllic childhood. I was surrounded by a loving family. I went to school. We weren't poor, and I was being taught to be a respectable worker with a profession, a master winemaker, in a business that had been passed down in our family from father to son for generations. Then the Nazis came in, and everything disappeared. 